take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Hear now the word of the living God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, living triune God, we pray that you would cause your spirit to work among us, that we may see the Christ baptized in the Jordan River, the Christ undergoing the baptism of the cross, and the Christ into whom we are baptized in union with him. We pray that you would encourage us in these things now. In Jesus' name, amen. On this particular day of the year, many people have beginnings in their minds. Either they're thinking about this new year ahead, perhaps resolutions that they intend to make or not make. Perhaps some of us are here and we're reflecting on the previous year, thinking about the beginnings that we wanted to see happen in 2022 that did or didn't occur. As you're sitting here today, you might be looking back to last January 1st, thinking to yourself, I had no idea what the last year would bring. And if the Lord gives you life and breath, undoubtedly, a year from now, you might say the same. But beginnings are in the minds of people, God's people, but people everywhere, because the calendar says it's a new year. You know, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, there is a sense in which there are beginnings. Beginnings to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. For months now, we've been tracing the words of the Old Testament preaching that Christ would come, and we have seen that he has come. But in this text this morning, you see what are really the beginnings of Jesus's ministry. If there was any point in the gospel accounts of the life of Christ, it would be this point right here, which is the beginnings of the ministry of Christ. And here's what I mean. This morning we'll see that Jesus was not only baptized by John in the Jordan River, but this, as John Owen would say, that Puritan of old, this is really the commissioning of Christ, as it were, by the living God to be the prophet, priest, and king for his people. All of heaven observes as Christ, the God-man, is seen as the one 
who is the true Son. Where Adam failed, Christ will not. Where Israel failed as God's Son, Christ will not. Where you failed as God's son or daughter of Adam, Christ will not. The living God pronounces over this Redeemer, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the beginnings of the ministry of Christ. I want us to walk through this text and see a few elements and then we'll close with three simple points of application this morning. First, what are we to make of Jesus being baptized? Boys and girls, we see believers baptized here in this place throughout the year, don't we? They trust in Christ. They've come to understand that they're a sinner, that they need a savior, that Christ has died for their sins, that he was raised, that God punished their sins on Christ and that Christ offers them eternal life. And so in obedience to him, they are baptized In the ordinance or sacrament of baptism, the covenant sign which God has given to his people, but they're all sinners. And Christ was not a sinner. What are we to make of this baptism? Well, in short, Jesus in this baptism is not bringing sin to the water. He is identifying with sinners by being washed in the river of their repentance of sin. Here's what I mean. John has come to the Jordan. What was John's role? The book of Malachi says that John is going to be set apart to prepare the way of the Lord. John comes on the scene, and that is exactly what he's doing. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we read, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This John is baptizing. Notice in the few verses that continue in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So this is a baptism of repentance. But notice John says in verse 11 as well, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If this is a baptism of repentance, again, we ought to ask the question, what sins did Jesus have to repent of? In this chapter, we see John the Baptist preaching repentance. Jesus here is not repenting of his sins, but he, as he says, to fulfill all righteousness, is identifying with the ministry of John to prepare a people for the Christ. He's identifying with sinners. He doesn't bring sin to the water. He doesn't bring repentance to the water, but he himself is immersed in the very waters of people crying out, I'm a sinner and I must repent. And Jesus identifies with them in a sense in the water of repentance from sin. And in just a few years, Jesus himself will be baptized, as it were, with the judgment for their sins. Scholars have noted that you could read the work of Christ in three baptisms. For instance, Alistair Roberts makes this argument, among others, that if you follow the work of Jesus 
From the beginning of a gospel till the end, this is what you'll see. He's baptized in the River Jordan, identifying with his people. He's baptized again, as it were, at the cross. You may say, well, how is the cross a baptism? And yet Jesus calls it that, doesn't he? Mark 10, verse 38. Luke 12, verse 50. He says, essentially, to one individual, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I must take? Meaning the cross. Meaning being immersed in the wrath of God for all the people that God would give to the Son to redeem So the Jordan baptism, identifying with the sins of his people. The baptism of the cross, being immersed in the wrath of God that we might not be. And then, as we see in this particular text, prophesied by John the Baptist, Jesus would offer a baptism in the Spirit to those that he saves. Look at what John says, prophesying the work of Christ here at the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, this description that John gives of Jesus, that he would be the one to baptize God's people with the Spirit, is an Old Testament prophecy. There are many instances in the Old Testament where the language is that one day God would baptize his people by his spirit. So this baptism is a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but it is Jesus identifying with the sins of his people, sins that he would carry. Not sins that he committed, but sins that we have committed. From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is identified with the sins of his people. He enters the waters of John's baptism of repentance. John, of course, says, knowing who the Christ is, you're coming to me to be baptized? I ought to have your baptism. But notice what Jesus says in verse 15. But Jesus answered him and said, Permitted to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. What does Jesus mean? Fulfill all righteousness. Essentially, Jesus is saying this is what God wants. I am obeying the will of the Father. Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, writes these words. They're very helpful. Quote, Jesus has not come to confess any sin, but to fulfill all righteousness. He has previously fulfilled specific prophecies as well as more general scriptural themes. Now he wishes to obey all the moral demands of God's will. To fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms part of a relationship of obedience to God. In doing so, Jesus identifies with and endorses John's ministry as divinely ordained and his message as one to be heeded. End quote. Jesus never, boys and girls, never failed to do what the Father wanted him to do. Part of the Father's desire was that Jesus experience this baptism of John, this preparatory work of John. And so Jesus says, John, you have to let me do this. 
You have to let me do this. You have to do this. This is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. I have come. And you have been ordained to prepare for my coming. I have come to be identified with the sins of God's people that he will save. This is what God wants. It's necessary. It's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So John allows him. And then we see something else, don't we? Verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now before we move further into what is seen, notice that phrase, the heavens were opened to him. If we were to ask ourselves the question, and we've asked this before in various texts, have we seen this before? The answer would be a resounding yes. Now, you may not remember because they're not as startling. They don't stand out as much. But all throughout the Old Testament, the phrase opening of heaven appears in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Ezekiel sees the heavens of above open with visions. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 2, the very commissioning of Ezekiel to be a prophet of God occurs with the openings of heaven. In the New Testament, it occurs in various places as an expression of God giving a vision. John 1, Acts 7, Acts 10, Revelation 4, Revelation 19. In Isaiah 64, verse 1, the prophet speaking on behalf of God's longing people, asks God to tear open the heavens and come down to redeem his people. So we ought not to read this phrase too quickly and think it means just a visual detail. No, here in the commissioning of the Son of God at the beginning of his ministry, what do we see? The final culmination of the longing of all the Old Testament prophets and their visions. Heaven is opened. But notice what is seen next. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here we see the one and true and living God as one God existing eternally. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do see in this particular text, here at the beginning of the ministry of Christ, the Trinity, don't we? Our confession of faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 3, reads in this way, and it's important to get this right. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God? 
uncomfortable dependence on him. End quote. Now, I know that that's a mouthful, but I read it intentionally this morning and I want us to hone in on this one particular phrase that this one God who is three persons is not to be divided in nature and being. It might be tempting to look at this and say, essentially, we have three gods. A God who speaks called Father. A spirit who occasionally takes on the form of animals, in this case a dove, and a son. But beloved, what you have here is the one God, the triune God, at the commissioning of Christ, seen as one God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 16 one more time. Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, even though we have just said the father, the son and the spirit are not three separate beings. We clearly see in this text, the spirit of God coming and alighting or resting upon this The Christ. What are we to make of it? Well, here we see Jesus, the Christ, fully God and fully man, as the chosen messenger of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. But there's Old Testament precedent for this. Isaiah 11, verse 2, says that the Spirit will come and rest upon the Messiah. For the work of the Messiah. So this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Not that the Son of God and the Spirit of God are separate beings. But that in Old Testament fulfillment of prophecy, the Spirit of God rests upon the God-man as the Redeemer, empowering Him to accomplish all of the work of His ministry. A ministry which will bring you to the face of God, believer. This is the Spirit of God resting, as was foretold by Isaiah 11, upon the God-man. But notice next in verse 17, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This language too comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 42 verse 1, Psalm 2 verse 7. We'll see these in a moment. But here... Jesus is seen as the commissioned son in whom God is well pleased. Some of you will recall from last week we saw a part of this. But Jesus is the true son of God. Now, God exists as father, son and Holy Spirit. Yes, but in the pages of the Bible, various individuals are seen as the son of God. Adam Israel, Israel is called a son of God in Exodus 4, verse 22. Last week we saw it, but it bears repeating in our text. Israel, the son of God, was brought out of Egypt while infants were slaughtered. Brought through the baptism of water through the Red Sea. And into the wilderness where they would fail temptation. Matthew, picking up on this theme gives us the stories of Jesus. And what do we see? Jesus was, as the text says, 
brought out of Egypt as an infant, while other infants died. Brought through the waters of baptism, the Jordan River. And where would Jesus go immediately after his baptism? Look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. But not for 40 years, 40 days. Jesus is the true Son of God. And all of heaven proclaims that this Son is the Son in whom God is well pleased. Here at the beginnings of the ministry of Christ, there are questions. What will He do? What will He accomplish? Again, these are questions that you might be asking yourself at the beginning of this calendar year. This is what I want to accomplish. These are my goals for the year. But here at the commissioning of the ministry of Christ, there are some application points for us. Many could be made. I want us to see three just briefly. We've walked through this text. Let's now consider how do we apply this to our own lives? Well, I want you to see that you have a Savior, believer, And three truths about this Savior that we see in this text come to mind. The first is this. You have a Savior who has identified Himself with your sins. You have a Savior who has identified Himself with your sins. Think about this. Jesus comes to the waters of John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. John says, what are you doing? Jesus says, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. This is what God wants. And he's immersed in the waters, preparatory waters, where repentance of sin is proclaimed. Christ has identified himself with the sins of Of the people who repent of sin. Who have plenty of sin to repent of. And he is bathed in the waters of John's baptism. If Jesus was bathed in your sins. And you have been washed clean, believer. How ought your conscience to be? How ought your conscience to be? Think about this. Christ came at the beginning of his ministry. His face bent toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, as the Gospel of Luke says. And here at the beginning, Jesus identifies himself with the sins of his people. Perhaps you call to mind various sins in your own life. Sins of the past, sins with which you currently wrestle. Jesus has identified himself with every last one of them. What do I mean by identified himself? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. God made him, Jesus, to be sin in whom there was no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. You need to understand that central to the Christian message, friend, is that Jesus came as a substitute for sinners. That He was sinless, fully God, always existing, but at a moment in time, assumed to Himself a full and true humanity. And according to His humanity, 
identified with the sins of all that He would redeem. And those sins were credited to His account. And He was treated, 2 Corinthians 5.21, as your sins deserved. So to be identified with your sins is not just a symbolic act. It is to say that at the beginning of the ministry, all the way through to the end, the Savior, the sinless one, came to be identified as a substitute for sinners. You ought to rejoice that at the beginning of His ministry, I ought to rejoice at the beginning of His ministry, Christ entered the baptism of John. Those weren't His sins. There was no need for Christ to repent of anything. John is preaching at the banks of the Jordan River, repent and be baptized. And here comes the sinless one. In obedience to God, the full and complete substitute who is immersed in the waters that preach repentance of sins. You have a Savior who has identified Himself with your sins. But secondly, believer, you have a Savior in whom you are a perfect Son. Now think about the narrative of Scripture. We start, don't we, with Adam. Just briefly, you know how that went. Adam, the image bearer of God, given a covenant of works. A trial period of glorifying God perfectly. And earning everlasting glory. But Adam fails. He is, of course, the federal representative for all humanity. Adam fails. And then God, through a series of promises, gathers what he calls a new son. Israel. Exodus 4.22 Israel, my son, he says. And gives them what? Laws and a command to obey, not to earn salvation, but to enter into this promised land, to stay in covenant with God. And they fail. God all along giving promises. Jesus comes, the third to be called the Son of God. And at the beginning of his ministry, heaven opens and like a trumpet blast, the words are heard, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He doesn't fail. You know, have you ever read the Gospel account and see Jesus in His temptation and think, I am in Him, and He didn't fail? You see Him interacting with the legalists, And in a pristine, perfect way, glorifying God and not sinning and saying to yourself, I am in Him. You see your own sin and you read the accounts of the Gospels and you see Christ hanging on the cross, paying fully for sin. And you say to yourself, I am in Him. And you don't need to wait like those first disciples. There is that three-day period where He dies You read in the Gospels on that first day of the week where He's raised, fully vindicated as the Son of God in whom God is well pleased. 
You say to yourself, I am in Him. He is the true Son. You know, the writers of the rest of the New Testament pick up on this theme, don't they? Just a couple of examples. Turn over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. There, the Apostle Paul, who will preach Christ in this letter, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, I know that there are some translations out there that want to render things a little bit more modernly read. You might have a translation that might say, adoption as children. And I understand the attempt there. <laughs> the attempt is, women are equally able to be saved. So let's modernize it and say adoption as children or adoption as sons and daughters. But in this instance, we eclipse some of the theological meaning. Adam the son who failed. Israel, the son who failed. Christ, the son who did not fail. And you are in him and thus you are adopted as a what? A son. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. And then this is your resume for 2023, by which he made us what? Accepted. Accepted in the beloved. You have a Savior, friend, who has identified himself with your sins if you're a Christian. And you have a Savior in whom you are a perfect son. You are accepted as a perfect son because you are in the Son in whom God is well pleased. Now, as a side note, look at the very next chapter. What is the first word of evil temptation that Satan brings to Jesus? When as the son, like Israel, he, after being brought through the waters of baptism, is carried off into the wilderness. What does Satan say to him first? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are a son, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. The Spirit of God falls upon the Redeemer. Heaven opens and the voice of God says, this is my beloved son. So what does Satan say? If. If. You know, Satan really doesn't have many tricks, does he? It's the same bag of tricks all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Just doubt God's word a little. If you are the son. Now, friends, you and I will often fail this test in our own wilderness of temptation, won't we? We will, by the very voice of Satan, hear the words, can you really trust God's word? And we'll give in to that sinfully for a season. But not this son. With one word, a word of scripture, the true son of God, 
banishes Satan. You have a Savior in whom you are a perfect son. One other principle or passage to see this, and we're almost finished. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says there of believers. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into what? The kingdom of the Son of his love. Now, this is a verse about Christians. I say that because you, you need to understand maybe you're here. It's the first day of the year. Church is something that you ought to do every once in a while. You might be thinking to yourself, all people in the end will be okay. Our good deeds will outdo our bad deeds. If there's even a God, somehow in God's economy, we'll all be okay. But you need to understand that the scripture makes clear that every human being is born separate from God and existing, as Paul says in Colossians 1, in the power of darkness. Under the reign of Satan and sinfully raising our fist at God. But this son, the son in whom God is well pleased, delivers trapped sinners And brings them into his kingdom of love. What you need, friend, is not to be a better person in 2023. If you're not a believer, what you need is to trust in Christ. You need to hear the words of John coming through Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe that this substitute was sent for sinners. You may say, well, what warrant do I have to believe such a message? This man lived 2,000 years ago, and, and I think there's something to the Bible, but what warrant do I have for coming to this Christ? Jesus tells you to. Come, he says. Come to me, and I will give you life. Come to me, he says, and I will not cast you out. You know, oftentimes, even believers in our doubts, we think to ourselves, what, what warrant do I really have to know that I've come to Christ? Christ bids you to come. He commands you to come. That's your warrant. The question is, have you come? If you have, Christ says over you, I will not cast you out. What you need at the beginning of this year, what you need at the beginning of every day is not to be a moral person, friend. You need to trust in Christ who identified with the sins of sinners, who took those sins all the way to the baptism of the cross where God poured out the full weight of righteous judgment upon sinners in Christ. He was the one who took the wrath of God in the stead of sinners. And He frees sinners from the weight of God's judgment. But the question for you is, are you in Him? Do you have faith in Him? So as we close, you have a Savior, Christian, who has identified himself with your sins. You have a Savior, Christian, in whom you are a perfect son. What does the book of Hebrews say? By one single sacrifice, Christ has done what? Perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Lastly, Christian, you have a Savior who was commissioned To be your prophet, priest, and king. It is John Owen who makes this passage 
a crucial passage where he says Jesus was commissioned in his baptism to be the prophet for God's people. But notice one last time, verse 17. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we mentioned this earlier, but this quote is a mixture of two Old Testament passages. Isaiah 42, verse 1. And Psalm 2, verse 7. Just look briefly before we finish. Isaiah 42, verse 1. There we read of this servant of God. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And then turn over to Psalm 2 and verse 7. Psalm 2 and verse 7. There the scripture reads this way. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River is the fulfillment of various Old Testament promises that God indeed would send His Messiah. That He would commission Him. That He would be pleased in Him. And that this Messiah would be the one who speaks the words of God ultimately and finally to God's people as prophet. That He would be the one who would offer sacrifice forever for God's people, priest. And that he would be the one to rule over them for all eternity. King. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you have a Savior who was commissioned at the beginning of his ministry to be your prophet. To be your priest. And to be your king. All of this comes to fulfillment at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So on this day, when your mind goes to various thoughts of what will this year be like? What goals do I have? What will I accomplish? In humble realization that you will not be able to, in your own strength, fulfill all of your own resolutions. Perhaps think back on this text and remember That at the beginnings of the ministry of this one, there were great plans. And unlike every one of our resolutions, he accomplished every last one of them. Let's pray.